Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Center for American Progress. I'm John Podesta. I'm the president of the center. And uh, I want to welcome you to the launch of the Progressive Studies Program at CAP, which we are excited about. Uh, John Halpin and Rui Tessera, senior fellows at CAP and co-directors of the Progressive Studies Program, will tell you much more about the project itself and present some of the fascinating findings uh, from two reports that we're releasing today. I also want to thank Mark, Mark Schmidt and Mark Lopez, uh, lots of Johns, lots of Marks around here, for joining us today uh, and, and offering their thoughts uh, on the reports. Uh, let me start by saying that all of this great work would not be possible without the partnership and support of the Glazer Progress Foundation in Seattle. Uh, we started working with Rob Glazer and uh, Martin Collier a few years ago to begin developing ways to present progressive values to the public through a series of innovative advertising treatments that drew on the historical victories of the progressive movement and also on core philosophical contrasts with conservatives. Many of you may have uh, seen those ads, which, which um, John really spearheaded, and um, we'll talk about that a little bit uh, later probably in the program. Uh, in developing that work, uh, we learned two important lessons. One, you cannot build a coherent, cohesive, progressive identity without first having a clear understanding of your own history and intellectual foundation. Uh, John and I tried to capture that insight into our book, The Power of Progress. Uh, the other lesson that we learned uh, was that no matter how much we think we know about what Americans think, rest assured, the American public has many different impulses, emphases, and competing values that must be explored if we are to engage people on their own terms. The product of that joint work uh, is the Progressive Studies Program at CAP, an interdisciplinary project exploring the history, intellectual foundations, uh, and public understanding of progressivism in America. We're in the process of developing a series of educational projects uh, around the intellectual development component, and today we're presenting the data side of the project. Uh, let me just briefly offer some context for the data itself, which uh, uh, John and Rui will go into in more depth. Uh, if you step back and look at what has occurred over the past five years or so, there's been an amazing transformation in American politics, not just in electoral terms, but also in terms of ideological attitudes. Uh, after nearly three days, uh, three decades uh, of playing on a field that was tilted towards public acceptance of what I might call the Reagan-Bush model of conservatism, limited government, tax cuts for the wealthy, traditional values and military strength, uh, we've now moved to a position of broad and deep support for a range of progressive uh, attitudes about government and society. We've moved from market fundamentalism, supply-side tax cuts, and deregulation of the economy to widespread support for sustainability and energy transformation, public investment in education and science, financial support for the poor, elderly, and sick, regulation uh, of business to protect workers and consumers, uh, and guaranteed affordable health coverage for every American. On the international front, we've turned away from the Bush neoconservative legacy towards a much greater interest in restoring the country's image abroad, uh, pursuing security through diplomacy, alliances, and international institutions, uh, and fighting climate change. As this research shows, at least two-thirds of Americans, reaching to 70 to 80 percent on some measures, agree with progressive ideas in each of these domestic and uh, global areas. That's actually a pretty seismic shift in attitudes that didn't just occur on its own, 
uh, the work of the broader progressive movement uh, in challenging conservatives and promoting I new ideas. Certainly the state of our economy brought low by, by the implementation of those conservative ideas and, and of course I think the campaign that was uh, just run in 2008 played a tremendous role in setting the stage uh, for an agenda of this magnitude. But as this research also shows, the conservative worldview maintains latent strength. Uh, conservatism is down, but it's not dead. While America is uh, decidedly progressive in its uh, worldview, uh, it is still about evenly split when it comes to political self-identity. So our job isn't done. Uh, we have to turn these core progressive values and demands, which have strong support, into concrete policy shifts that work for the American public. It's our job to promote and execute what began with the early progressives uh, at the turn of the 20th century and was carried on uh, through the actions of uh, people like Franklin Roosevelt, Bobby Kennedy, Dr. King, Linda Johnson, and Bill Clinton, uh, and activists of all stripes. We hope this new progressive studies program will help contribute to that effort, and we thank you for joining us today. With that, uh, I'm going to turn it over to John and Rui uh, to tell you more about the data in these uh, studies and to tell you a little bit more about the program. John. Thanks, John, and uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is John Halpin. I'm a senior fellow here uh, at the Center for American Progress. And with uh, another senior fellow here, Rui Teixeira, we're the co-directors of the new Progressive Studies program. Uh, if I could just take a few minutes before we dive into uh, a wealth of data that uh, I'm sure you're interested in seeing, I just want to uh, thank a few people uh, that made this launch possible. Uh, John mentioned, obviously, the, the folks at Glazer, but uh, in particular, I want to thank Martin Collier, who's the executive director of the Glazer Foundation. Uh, he's really been a tremendous partner in developing all this work, and uh, we very much appreciate all of his support and that of Rob Glazer. I also want to recognize Carl Agney, who is my co-author on the, on the poll report, uh, as well as his partner, Jim Gerstein of Gerstein Agney uh, Strategic Communications. They helped design and, and conduct the research uh, that I'm presenting today. On the, on the CAP side, uh, all these mind-numbing data trends and points that you see were uh, really brought to life by our, our fantastic editorial and, and graphic design team, Ed Paisley, Andrew Sherry, Sherry Shannon Ryan, Matt Pusateri, and Evan Hensley. Uh, I don't know if you had a chance to see the actual reports. We didn't print them out because they're very long, uh, and one of our primary consensus values is to conserve energy and consume fewer goods, so we uh, decided to let you all find get those online. But there's also a, a really neat uh, version of the survey that you can take yourself. We call it a progressive quiz, and it, it takes the core 40 questions from our survey and allows you to measure you know, how relatively conservative or progressive you are. So I encourage you to do that. We also have a neat interactive map uh, that's, that's just chock full of all sorts of county level voting trends and public opinion data um, uh, that really helped put together uh, with folks on our online team. Uh, and from the communications and events side, many thanks to Susie Emerling, John Noor, uh, Vanessa Cardenas, Anna Soldner, uh, Jennifer Palmieri, Fash Shakir, Alex Pryor, uh, James Heidbretter, and Aaron Green for all their work in, in, in helping us uh, get this off the ground today and, and, and publicizing the information. Uh, let me formally introduce our two um, respondents today. Uh, first is Mark Lopez. Uh, he's the Associate Director of the Pew Hispanic Center, where he studies political engagement among Latinos and helps to coordinate the center's national surveys. Uh, prior to joining Pew, he was the Research Director at the Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement at the University of Maryland. Uh, has a nice acronym of CIRCLE, which is easier than saying all those words, I think. Uh, he's now a, a visiting professor at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy as well. And um, 
fortunately, he's going to keep an eye on our, our, our quantitative methods here. He's a PhD in economics, so he's, uh, he's very good with data and, and survey research. Uh, we also have Mark Schmidt, who's the executive editor of the American Prospect. Um, he's been a contributor uh, to the Prospect since 2001. He was formerly a senior fellow at the New America Foundation across town here. Uh, and was a program director at the Open Society Institute. Uh, he served for many years as the policy director for Senator Bill Bradley. Uh, and I've really enjoyed my own conversations with Mark over the years on, on uh, political history and, and the intellectual foundations of progressivism and liberalism. So he's going to offer some uh, neat context on that. Um, let me just briefly, before jumping into the results of the poll, uh, expand a little bit on, on what the Progressive Studies program is going to do. As John said, the program is divided into two primary areas. One is an examination of the history, political thought, and philosophy of progressivism and its relationship to other ideologies and American politics more broadly. Uh, we are just now designing a series of interesting lectures, book events, debates, online educational tools, and trainings for young people and activists uh, that we hope will spark more internal and external discussions about the nature of progressive thought. Uh, right now, we're looking to launching an informal uh, progressivism on tap series, which will bring together interesting speakers with uh, regular folks in cities and local watering holes to discuss some of the uh, great ideas of progressive thought and history. Um, we're working on a series of training mo uh, modules and retreats for young folks and activists to, to dive into some of these uh, core values. Uh, on the substantive side, we're looking to explore a whole range of things from the, you know, the, how the ideas of uh, Jefferson and Hamilton have shaped progressive politics to the importance of Abraham Lincoln and the progressive movement. Uh, we'll look at major writers and thinkers from uh, Herbert Crowley and Walter Lippmann to John Dewey and John Galbraith. Uh, we plan to explore major, major social movements that John and I uh, discussed in, 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 in our, our book, uh, dealing with the settlement houses and the social gospel tradition. We're going to look at the rise of labor, civil rights, women's, and environmental movements throughout the 20th century. And we hope to dive in more specifically into the key intellectual foundations of major public policy debates, whether it's progressive taxation and regulation, or international cooperation and human rights, a whole range of things. The second part of this uh, larger program is a data analysis and public opinion arm. Uh, and what we want to do here is to examine American attitudes about all of these abstract ideas that we're going to talk about in, in the other part of, uh, of the program. So let me, uh, let me first start by, uh, by presenting quickly some of the, the results from a major new study we did. This was a, we did two separate studies here. Uh, of American ideological attitudes. One was with a 1,400 sample survey of, of the public at large, and we did a companion survey of what is generally referred to as the millennial generation. We're going to release uh, the youth results at, at a later date. Um, um, when you came in, I think people, uh, I hope everybody has a copy of this. There's a table, table one, from our report. Um, which is a list that, you know, the core of the survey we did was to ask people a battery of 40 questions about the role of government, culture and society, international affairs, and economic and domestic policy. Uh, and all of this, all these statements were written as fundamental values, 20 affirmative ideas from the progressive side, 20 from the conservative side. And what we did was create a composite score, which I'll explain in a minute. But what you see on table one here is a rank order uh, of the 40 ideas that really shape, political ideas that really shape American politics. And this is ranked on the total level of agreement. Um, at the very top of the list, there's some interesting trends here uh, before we dive into the composite measures. Uh, at the very top of the list, a complete consensus idea is the notion that Americans 
should adopt a more sustainable lifestyle by conserving energy and consuming fewer goods. 80% uh, of Americans overall agree, agree with this notion, 47% strongly agree. What you see throughout this, this, this table here is that most of the ideas with the strongest consensus in America right now are what might be called progressive ideas. Sustainability, the need for government investment in education and science and infrastructure, the energy transformation to renewable energy, uh, uh, restoring America's uh, positive image abroad, the need for universal health care, a range of other things. Of the top 15 statements with at least 60% support, only four are conservative. Uh, and and they're, they're, they're not the core part of, the conser of conservative ideology. What is interesting, and you'll notice starting at the bottom of page one and onto the top of page two, uh, this is a very important point that John alluded to, there still remains uh, residual strength for the conservative worldview. If you'll see here that the core of the uh, uh, conservative perspective on anything from issues of life to free markets to cutting taxes to role of the traditional family, uh, reform of Social Security, the importance of military force, limited government, all of these uh, basic values, ideological values, enjoy majority support among Americans. So even though we have we're in a period of uh, much stronger consensus around progressive ideas. The conservative worldview still has a lot of latent strength, uh, and we'll get into what that means. What you also notice as you go through this table is that uh, the issues, uh, issues surrounding the status of African Americans in society, immigration, labor unions, talking with enemies, all these things remain uh, deeply contested uh, um, ideas, and they lead to most of the polarization that we see throughout the survey. There are things like deficits, uh, and the impact of regulation on business, these are people pretty ambivalent about this thing. I, I, was, I was struck, yeah, it would be interesting to track this over time, particularly on the deficit measure, whether that changes. Um, now what does all this data mean? Uh, what we did was we took the answers, again, it's on a zero to 10 scale, and if anybody's taken the progressive quiz yet, you've seen it. You rank from, from disagree to agree on a zero to 10 scale. We aggregated all of these into a new composite measure of ideology in America. Uh, and what you see here, uh, is that you get a composite score of 209.5 on a 0 to 400 scale. Uh, it's a very simple scale, actually, and 0 is, would be the most conservative position, meaning maximum agreement with conservative ideas and maximum disagreement with progressive ones. 400 is the most progressive point on the, on the continuum. That's maximum agreement with progressive ideas, maximum disagreement with conservative ones. Uh, so what you see here is that the nation as a whole, its average score, it's solidly progressive, but not excessively so. Um, what you see in the various categories that make up the composite mean score, Americans overall are more progressive on the role of government, uh, and less so on cultural and social beliefs with international affairs and economic and domestic policy somewhere in between. When we go to the next graph here, uh, this is one of the more interesting findings. The actual range of opinion of groups in the United States ranges uh, from about 160.6 to 247.1. Uh, you've got conservative Republicans at one end and liberal Democrats at the other. What's interesting about this is that you see that ideological attitudes overall converge in the middle. Uh, no one group approaches either extreme and on either side of the, uh, the continuum. Uh, so what this tells us, in my mind, is that uh, there are many ideas that, that Americans may have, may believe on their own side that they don't, they're not fully convinced of, and that Americans simultaneously are open to a range of ideas on the other side. The, the conceptualization that you frequently see in some uh, commentary that we have a, you know, a far right and a far left poll is not actually accurate when you look at the American public as a whole. It's more accurate to say there's a far center right and a far center left. 
Um, one of the more interesting things that comes out of this when you when you dive into some of these groups is the is the education gap in America. A lot of people talk about the uh, you know di di divisions between partisanship and ideology. One of the more uh, uh, stark findings we found throughout the poll is the division in attitudes between non-college non educated Americans and college educated ones. And just to give you a, a little bit of flavor about this, when you compare um, the range of questions we asked, the 40 that you have, between uh, those with a high school degree or less and those with a postgraduate degree, uh, those non-college educated uh, Americans are far more populist in their attitudes about government and economics and much more conservative in their attitudes about cultural values uh, and national security. For example, uh, uh, those with a high school degree or less are 18 points more likely to strongly agree uh, than postgraduate elites that government policies that too often serve the interests of corporations and the wealthy. They're 16 points more likely to agree, strongly agree that the gap between the rich and poor should be reduced, even if it means higher taxes for the wealthy. They're 17 points more likely to agree that labor unions play a positive role in our economy. At the same time, uh, these non-college voters are, are 17 points more likely to strongly agree that human life begins at conception. They're 28 points more likely to strongly agree that immigrants today are a burden on our, our society. They're 34 points higher on the notion that America has taken too large a role in the world. So what you see is an emerging uh, division between two worldviews, not necessarily defined by ideology, but, but, but defined uh, by divisions in education in, in, in America. I think it's a pretty fascinating finding. Just quickly, um, interesting map uh, our, 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 our good design folks put together here. This shows you some of the differences by region. Uh, the east and the west are more progressive in aggregate than those in the south and, and central regions. Uh, there are even bigger divisions between uh, those in rural areas, suburban areas, and urban areas, with, with urban areas being far more progressive uh, than rural areas. Uh, perhaps not surprising, but we have some uh, quantitative measures on that. Um, the next thing we did after looking at the actual, one of the things we wanted to do in measuring ideology was to see what people actually believe. That's the composite score you just saw. The next part we wanted to examine was what we think is a more, um, a more uh, complex and rich understanding of how people identify themselves. The traditional ideological breakdown in this country is on a three-point scale uh, that you see through, through most polling, liberal, moderate, conservative. With that breakdown, you get roughly, for a long period of time, about one-fifth of Americans identifying as liberal and roughly about 40% in, in moderate and conservative categories, respectively. We decided to ask what we think is a better uh, actual understanding of the varieties of labels that people might apply to themselves. We came up with a five-point measure, liberal, progressive, moderate, conservative, and libertarian. And what you see in this graph here is that when you ask this five-point scale, uh, you, get a, you get a different picture in many ways of, of, of self-identification of ideology. 15% of the country identifies as liberal, 16% progressive, 29% moderate, 34% conservative, and 2% libertarian. Uh, we then asked, we also know that moderates in many cases lean towards one side or another. So when we had a follow-up question with moderates uh, about which, you know, which direction they lean on these other ideologies, you get this graph on the right, which is almost a, a, a perfectly even divide between a 47% block of people who identify as progressive and liberal and a 48% block of those who identify as conservative and libertarian. Um, one of the things you see here, uh, you know, the, 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 these ideological labels match up pretty well uh, based on partisanship. Uh, you've got roughly 25% each of Democrats identifying as liberal and progressive. Uh, independence, plurality identifies moderate and 
Republicans overwhelmingly identify as conservative. But one of the more interesting things, again, is the fluidity of opinion across labels. So what you actually find when you take these labels and match them to the 40 questions that I outlined earlier, uh, you see that a majority of conservatives agree with four out of five progressive positions on the role of government. Uh, conversely, a majority of liberals and progressives agree with conservative positions on, on certain things on the economy, particularly free trade and social security. Interesting trend there. Um, one of the more interesting findings in this uh, poll is the uh, public favorability towards uh, various ideological approaches. And we've tracked a lot of this data uh, basically since the Center for American Progress started in 2003, 2004. Uh, the most significant finding here is the, the substantial increase in public favorability towards progressive as an approach to politics. And you can see in this graph here that there, from 2004 to 2009, there's been a 22% net favor favorable increase uh, in um, uh, uh, perceptions about progressive. Almost all of this came from a, a block of people in 2004 who, 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 were, who didn't identify the term or were unable to give it a rating. So basically what's happened over the past five years is that this large block of people who couldn't identify progressive came in with at least somewhat favorable opinions of it. If you'll see now, uh, conservative and, and progressive are equally favorable uh, among the American public at 67% apiece. I think that's a really interesting finding. Uh, one a sub finding here that you might find fascinating is that although we frequently talk about conservatives and libertarians being very aligned, we found some pretty stark differences. We couldn't fully analyze libertarians because we got a small sample. But one of the things you notice is that conservatives don't rate the libertarian label very well at all. Only 35% of, of uh, self-identified conservatives rate libertarian favorably. Uh, conversely, when you look at the libertarians that we got in the survey, um, there's some big differences. Core alignment on, on government issues and econ issues, massive divergences on culture and national security, uh, and, and actually the, the support for, for Senator McCain in 2008 was much lower among libertarians than it was among conservatives at large. Um, here. Um, we then went into, uh, try and speed this up a bit, the, um, we asked a number of interesting questions about uh, more abstract values in American life. And we presented people with a list of things and asked them which two of these you know, American political values are most important to you. Not surprisingly, uh, given the, the Jeffersonian origins of the country, liberty is the, is the chief value selected by 42% of people. It doesn't add up to 100 because we allow people to pick two. But what's interesting here uh, is the division, but you know, some, not division, it's actually just some emphasis. Progressives and Democrats put more emphasis on values like equality and opportunity, while conservatives and Republicans tend to put more on, on liberty, free enterprise, and justice. I think that's an interesting, uh, interesting finding. We also probed uh, how people are dealing with uh, the current environment. Not surprisingly, you've got a huge block of people who say that their incomes aren't keeping up with the cost of living. Again, stressing the education divide here, when you break out that group, you see that uh, among non-college educated Americans, the percentage who feel like their incomes are falling behind is much greater than those uh, who are college educated. Um, this education gap continues on perceptions about the American dream. Uh, we ask people whether they have achieved it, they think they will achieve it uh, in their lifetime or won't achieve it. Uh, and overall, 34% say they have achieved it, 41% are optimistic that they will, and 18% uh, are, are, are convinced that they will not achieve it. What's most interesting here, again, is the division between non-college and college educated. Postgraduate educated Americans, 50% of them say they've already achieved the American dream. 
uh, compared to 30% of those with a high school degree or less. Uh, a full quarter of high school or, uh, high school or less educated Americans uh, say they will not achieve it compared to only 5% of postgraduates. Again, some of that uh, divisions in worldview there. We also, if you want to understand uh, sort of the macro context for why uh, Americans seem to be uh, very progressive in some of their attitudes today, uh, you get some sense of it with this graph here. We ask people to choose between uh, competing visions about uh, the common good and individual liberty. Uh, the top question asks people to, uh, you know, says uh, government should do more to promote the common good versus government should do more to promote individual liberty. By 60 to 40 percent margin, people favor the government doing more to pr uh, promote the common good at this point. A roughly equal breakdown uh, favors what might be called an FDR-style vision of freedom, uh, one that says, you know, it requires economic opportunity uh, and basic measures of security housing, old age protection, things like that, you get about the same percentage saying they prefer that vision of freedom over a more classically liberal one where people you know, are free to make their own decisions and live with the consequences. Um, finally, let me just end up with some interesting data we have on perceptions about uh, uh, the new president. Um, not surprisingly, in the next couple of numbers, what, you, what you're starting to see here are clear signs that conservatives are hardening in opposition to the president. Uh, President Obama's overall job approval is 58% in this poll. Uh, but if you look at this graph here, you'll see on the, on the left and the right, 42% uh, of, of conservatives disapprove of uh, Obama's job performance and a full 53% of Republicans. Um, interestingly, we, we, uh, President Obama wrote in his 2006 book that I serve as a blank screen on which vastly different uh, political stripes project their own view. We put this theory to a test and ask people to, to, dis, uh, to rate or describe President Obama's own political perspective. Uh, and what you get, uh, people tend to lean towards progressive and liberal overall, but there are massive divisions here. You do get this, this I'm a blank screen idea for liberals, moderates, and progressives. A plurality of liberals say he's a liberal. Uh, a plurality of moderates say he's a moderate. Uh, a large plurality of progressives say he's a progressive. On the first column there, you'll see that a majority of conservatives think Obama's a liberal. Um, and so what you're starting to see is a hardening of opposition and a belief that his, his perspective is different from their own. Um, you see uh, similarly here, we ask people for, this may not show up too well, I apologize, it's in the, it's in the report. We ask people for, their own, for a one word description, a phrase or a word to describe President Obama. Overall, uh, they're overwhelmingly positive. It's basically personal qualities about the president or how he embodies change. If you look at the two columns on the right, you'll see that uh, among conservatives, they're just as likely to say that he's not up to the job or can't be trusted. Uh, you'll notice that I, I believe it's 14% of, uh, so, uh, of Republicans call him a socialist, um, uh, which, is, which is interesting in and of itself. Um, but what's clear from this, uh, that's an interesting uh, segue into the, uh, into the finale here, the, um, given the clear, uh, clear preference for progressive priorities, uh, and values that the president himself has outlined uh, in his uh, joint address to Congress in the budget. Uh, it's not surprising that the president is doing well. Uh, conservatism, as John said, is not dead. But I think until and unless conservatives recognize the depth of affinity between the president's values and priorities and those of the American public, it's likely that many conservative ideas will, will remain in secondary status. Um, so those are just some of the conclusions and findings we have from this uh, survey. I now want to turn it over to uh, my partner here, Rui Teixeira, who's going to march you through uh, some of the interesting demographic, 
uh, and electoral trends that have occurred over the past 20 years. So thank you very much. of uh, Barack Obama and uh, all the various uh, public opinion data from our survey, and there's lots out, uh, more out there besides. I think it's fair to say something called the New Progressive America is kind of with us today. Um, so where did it come from and where is it going? That's really the subject of my report, uh, which is available online, the New Progressive America, and I'm just going to present some of the data from that here today. There is more, oh, so much more in the report, so I do urge you to check it out. Um, well, one thing that lies behind this new progressive America is uh, the increasing share of the vote that comes from minorities. This is some exit poll, exit poll data. 15% of voters in 1988 were minorities. In the last presidential election, 26%. 11 point shift over 20 years. That's about half a percentage point a year. In demographic terms, that's just, that's just startling um, how fast things are changing. And minorities, and this is how they voted in 2008, 80% to 18% for Barack Obama, huge 62-point margin. In our survey, minorities are far higher than white voters on all of the four indices that we, we, uh, that, that we have in the survey, culture, role of government, economics, and, and international issues. And uh, minorities, uh, Hispanics are particularly high in the role of government, and interesting enough on cultural values, sometimes Hispanics are are uh, characterized as having uh, very conservative social positions. That's not what we found in our survey. Blacks tend to be uh, the highest of all the race, ethnic groups, and economic issues. Uh, but, but across the board, uh, quite progressive on the part of minority voters. Um, in the future, where is this going? Well, uh, we're going to have more and more minorities. That's where it's going. These are the population projections by race from the Census Bureau to the year 2050. The year 2042 is the year we're going to become a majority-minority nation, according to the Census. Uh, there'll be 54% minorities by the time of 2050. You can see non-Hispanic whites going down by 20 points and a doubling of the Hispanic population from 15 to 30%. So basically, in the most simplest possible terms, you're swapping out you know, whites for Hispanics, fundamentally. I mean, also some Asians, but what's really driving it is that swap out and you're basically exchanging uh, people who have much more progressive views on all the issues we've discussed for people who have, well, somewhat less progressive views. So that's going to make a difference uh, to this new progressive America going forward. Now, another thing that's really benefited progressives over time is the, uh, the increasingly progressive uh, tendencies of white college graduate voters. If you look at these data from 1988 to 2008 in the exit polls, um, there was a 20-point deficit uh, for Dukakis in 1988. In 2008 for Barack Obama, only a four-point deficit. That's a 16-point pro-progressive swing uh, from between the two elections. In our survey, and again, this is consistent with other data, white college graduate voters overall compared to white non-college voters with less than a four-year degree or white working class voters, white college graduate voters are far more progressive on international issues, far more progressive on cultural issues, and interestingly, somewhat more progressive on the role of government because um, uh, white working class voters tend to be very susceptible to conservative arguments about how government can't work and it's completely wasteful and you know, just throwing money down a rat hole. So uh, overall, white college voters are, are actually somewhat more progressive on the role of government. And some of the economic issues, not quite as progressive 
as white working class voters, particularly in some of the more populist things, as, as John was mentioning. Um, now let's, whoops. Now I'm going. Yeah, maybe just do it here. Losing track. So we need to be um, uh, at the progressive deficit among the white working class, wherever that is. Oh, you got to actually cycle back through it. Yeah, there we go. You just that. That's it. My God, that's it. I know those data. Okay, so. <laughs> These are the progressive deficits among the white working class uh, voters. And as you can see, 20-point deficit in 1988, 23 points in 2004, that was Kerry's debacle. Uh, an improvement in 2008 to 18 points, but not a big one. So between the two elections, there's not, there's not a huge shift. And again, these white working class voters very really quite conservative on, on cultural and, and foreign policy issues and actually fairly conservative in the role of government. So these voters have not been uh, uh, voting for progressives. Um, I guess I can try this again to see if, uh, yes, there we go. Well, let's put it all together in terms of how the electorate's shifting over time then. Um, over a 20-year period, a 15-point drop in the percent of voters that are from the white working class, three-quarters of a point a year, a four-point increase in white college graduates, and 11-point increase in minority voters. So basically, we're swapping out white working class voters for white college graduate and minority voters who, especially minority voters, are far more progressive uh, than white working class voters at this point in time. So that's a huge benefit to the, uh, to the um, uh, progressives, and that's just going to continue, because these trends are going to continue, these demographic trends that are reshaping uh, the American electorate. Now, how did this affect a lot of the states that were critical in the 2008 election? Well, basically, you see the same pattern that I was outlining on a national level in state after critical state. Pennsylvania, Ohio, Florida, Nevada are shown here. Look at these changes. They're just phenomenal. 25-point decline in white working-class voters as a share of voters between 1980 and 2008. A 16-point increase in white college graduate voters, 8-point increase in minorities. And on the other hand, you have Nevada, same level of decrease in white working-class voters, a 19-point increase in minority voters. A percentage point a year, that's a that's an increase that we're still seeing today. You get about a percentage point a year increase in Nevada in, the, in minority voters, and it's a smaller increase in white college graduates. But again, the, the, the actual parameters of the shift changes from state to state, but state after state you see exactly this pattern. Very sharp and steady decline in white working class voters and, in, and taking their place a much more progressive minority and, and white college voters, uh, graduate voters. So that's, um, that's going to be quite an influence going forward. Um, okay, this is, uh, I'm not going to be able to go back. Oh, there we go. Can we go back to the, I missed the millennial. Well, anyway, I'll just, I remember the data. So, how did millennials vote in 2008, you ask? Well, they voted um, uh, 66 to 32 uh, for Barack Obama. Um, in fact, there they are. There they are arriving at the polls. There's my slide. Um, so that's a pretty, and this is the first election in which millennial generation, those born after 1978, were uh, the entire uh, group of 18 to 29 year olds. So something's going on with these millennials, and in fact we confirm it in our poll, millennials tend to be uh, much more progressive across the board in all four of our indices, particularly in cultural and international issues. Um, they're just really uh, quite different than the generations that preceded them, and those, those views seem to be moving them toward a, a candidate like Barack Obama in large numbers. So uh, let's see if I can get to this next slide. 
Okay. And how many are we going to have in the future? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I've looked at that. In fact, the way things are working now, if we look at the census projections, we're going to have four and a half million more millennial eligible voters added to the electorate every year into the year 2018. That's a lot of new voters, and that's a lot of new voters who at this point look like they're leaning pretty heavily progressive. Um, so we had 48 million in 2008. We're going to have 64 million when Barack Obama runs for re-election in 2012. Uh, and then 81 million in 2016. And by the time they're all in the electorate, which will be the presidential election of 2020, there'll be 90 million millennial eligible voters in the electorate. That's, that's quite substantial. And uh, again, if they keep on doing what they've been doing, uh, that's very good news for progressives. There are a number of other growing groups that are important for progressives. One is single women. Uh, college-educated women, I can't show here because uh, they haven't released the data yet, the exit polls, but look at how single women voted in, in 2008, 70 to 29 for Barack Obama. Single women are going to continue to grow as a percent of, of women voters, probably. Um, they've gone up from about 38 to 47 percent of adult women since uh, the uh, early 70s. Um, working women actually were very good, too, for Barack Obama, 60 to 39. Again, we look in our poll, it was only 51.48 for John Kerry. But if you look at our poll, single women, again, at each of our indices, if you look at cultural, you look at um, international, you look at the role of government, particularly look at economic issues, single women are much more progressive uh, than married women. So again, we have a kind of swap out taking place where less progressive uh, uh, voters are being, their place is being taken by others. Now here's, here's an important part of the progressive coalition today. John mentioned how progressive postgraduates are. And, um, uh, cultural and international is very true, kind of off the charts. They're also relative to the population as a whole, quite progressive on, on the other issues as well, including the role of government, particularly in international and cultural issues. Look at how they've been voting, just going up the ladder for progressive candidates and giving Barack Obama an 18-point margin in, in, uh, in, in 2008. This is basically most of these people tend to be professionals. It's kind of the rise of the professional class, a class whose views really are quite consistent at this point with where progressives are coming from. Um, so another part of what's going on, too, is the growth of religious diversity in our country. Not everyone's a white evangelical Protestant, we know that. And one thing that is happening in our country is we have uh, a larger group of people who don't attend church that much, even though they may consider themselves among the faithful. Uh, according to the University of Chicago's General Social Survey, we have about 42% of people, um, uh, about 29% of people said they went to church only a few times a year and ever back in the 70s. Today it's up to about 42%. And look at how those people are voting. You can see the data there from the 2008 poll. This was just confirmed by the release of a new version of the American Religious Identification Survey, the fastest growing sector um, of, of the religious kind of spectrum in the United States is people who have no religion, who are not affiliated. They may, in fact, have some spiritual values they adhere to or or in some ways consider them, but they're just not affiliated. In that sense, they have no religion. Those people both voted extremely heavily for Barack Obama. Again, we look at our survey, we see these people are off the charts in terms of the level of progressivism, particularly, as you might guess, on cultural issues. They're just, just really uh, remarkably progressive in that sense. So um, let's take it, a, let's kind of move the screen out to geography now. Where are these trends coming together? Where white working class voters are declining, where white college graduates and especially minorities are increasing, where single women and professionals are growing. Where are all these trends coming together, these progressive constituencies? They're coming together in our largest metro areas where most of the growth is taking place. Secondarily in our medium metro areas and, 
and down to the deep rural areas. And you can see here the shifts that have taken place since 1988 in these areas. These large metro areas are metro areas that have populations of over a million. That's, um, there's 51 of these metro areas, that's 54% of the U.S. population are in those 51 metros. Uh, the shift that has taken place toward progressives in this 20-year span is 21 points in large metros, 15 points in the medium metros, which is between a quarter of a million and a million. That's another 20% of the population. Then only seven points in the small metros. Then in small town rural, or micropolitan as it's called, only two points. And then the deep rural counties where basically hardly anybody lives, um, the progressives have actually lost ground by six points. So I think you kind of see a pattern there of what's going on in terms of the different uh, geographical types. And, the, and so, and then we can um, take a look at, uh, finally, go back to those states we talked about, um, uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Florida, and Nevada, which looms so large in the 2008 election. Where is the growth taking place in these, or the heaviest growth in these, uh, these states? It tends to be, well, for example, in Pennsylvania, it's, it's around Philadelphia, well, also in the, the Allentown area and down in the Harrisburg area, but Philadelphia suburbs especially are what's really growing. 32-point shift toward progressives over that 20-year period. Basically, not much is growing in Ohio, but they are growing in the Columbus area. That's really the growth center of Ohio. 31-point shift toward progressives over the time period. Orlando was a, you know, Disney World, the I-4, in the I-4 corridor is one of the fastest growth areas in, in Florida, though Florida is generally a fast-growing state. Orlando is the fastest growing of the four large metros. An incredible 48-point shift uh, toward uh, progressives over the 20-year time span. Finally, Las Vegas and Nevada. Nevada's really all about Las Vegas. Nevada, the fastest growing state in the, U in the United States, and Las Vegas Metro is the fastest growing part of Nevada. A 35-point shift toward progressives over the time period. So I don't think it's hard to see the message here, which is that where America is growing, progressives are growing. Where America's going in the future is exactly where progressives are, are gaining strength. If you put all these demographic and geographic trends together, you know, it, it suggests that not only are we looking at a, at, a, at a country that leans progressive at this time, but all these trends should take us farther uh, in that direction in the future and, and sort of increase that lean, uh, make those views stronger, and provide perhaps a, a better basis for implementing progressive policies. At least that's the way it looks to me. So I just urge you to take a look at the report. Thanks. Thanks so much. Uh, it's a lot of data to absorb, so uh, to, put, to put all this in some perspective, uh, we've asked Mark and Mark uh, to give, uh, take some time to give their own thoughts about what they read and poke holes in it and, and give us some alternative uh, interpretations, things like that. Mark Lopez, you want to go first? Sure, sure. Um, thank you very much. Uh, I wanted to say I really enjoyed reading both reports, and, and thank you for including me on the panel today. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I want to talk about, let me, let me actually talk about Rui's report first, since that's, that, that's fresh in our minds. I want to talk about a couple of things. I think that a lot of what's in here is really quite interesting. And when I was a research director at Circle, we saw many of these patterns happening as well. Young people certainly leaning more Democrat, more progressive. We certainly had seen that happening. But one of the things I think that's interesting about the millennials is that we noticed at Circle, um, and Rui, I'm interested in your, in your reaction to this, is that for, to a large extent, the youth population is much more diverse than the general U.S. population. And that a lot of the movement towards the Democratic Party or towards a progressive view has really been driven by the growing diversity of the youth population. When you look at 2004, not 2008, but in 2004, 
Uh, white youth, ages 18 to 29, supported George Bush by about 10 points. But when you look at Hispanics, you look at African Americans, you look at Asian Americans, you see that, though, that, that among that youth, those youth groups, you see a lot of support for the Democratic candidate. It depends on which group we talk about, but generally speaking, it was minority youth who supported, supported Kerry, it was white youth who supported Bush. In 2008, though, again, we see minority youth strongly supporting the Democratic candidate, Barack Obama. We also saw among white youth, though, support for Barack Obama, though not quite as strong as we see among uh, general uh, uh, minority youth. So I say that a large, to a large extent, the future of America is a more diverse America, and we're seeing it now. It's that age group of 18 to 29-year-olds who are very diverse, and that's probably the sort of patterns we're going to see going into the future with a strongly Democrat-leaning youth population. But let's talk a little bit about Latinos, because I'm from the Pew Hispanic Center, and so I want to talk to you about Latinos, and Latinos, I think, are an interesting group to, to talk about. A um, couple of things about Latinos. While Latinos today represent 15% of the entire U.S. population, they're the single largest minority group in the United States, um, and among adults, they represent 13% of the U.S. population, um, many of them are, are ineligible to vote. They're ineligible to vote because they're not U.S. citizens, and in fact, about half of the adult population uh, of Hispanics is actually foreign-born, more than half. So you've got a tremendous number of uh, Latinos who are unable to vote because they're not U.S. citizens. Second reason, they're under 18. So there's these two mechanical reasons for why Hispanics maybe haven't quite achieved the political power that you might have expected, given the relative size of their population. But as Rui correctly points out, moving forward, that share of the population will be Hispanic will double by 2050. We also expect that the Pew Hispanic Center, by about 2040, Hispanics will, in terms of their potential, their percentage of the population that they represent that's eligible to vote, should very closely match the percentage of the adult population overall. But it won't be until about 2040, 2050, where we really see the share of the population that's Hispanic equal the share of voters who, are, who we expect to be Hispanic. So that's going to take some time. But what this also points to is that every election, every presidential election, about an additional two million Latinos become eligible to vote. And every election, the number of Hispanics who actually cast votes has actually been growing. So while they're still at a relative disadvantage, their numbers are going up. But let me uh, move, to, uh, move to John's paper and talk a little bit about the data set. Um, and first say, I really enjoyed reading the paper. I, as a as an academic, because I'm still, I guess I'm still kind of an academic and the type of guy who looks at surveys, I found the, the breadth of questions that were covered tremendous. This was really useful to see, and I would love to be able to, I haven't played with the quiz yet, but I'm glad to hear that there's a quiz online. Um, so this breadth of questions is fantastic. It gives you a lot of depth of, uh, of, of information about the views of, of Americans. A couple of things, though. Um, first, something that's a little bit fun that I thought was interesting. Now, we usually talk about the liberal news media, and if you look at the list of people who are saying that they're progressive but watch national daily television or daily news, they're actually less progressive on this scale than the general population, so they're below the average. So folks who are watching national television news are less progressive, and I don't know where the liberal news media comes in on this, compared to the general population. Second thing, I did think it was very interesting to see Latinos at the top of all the minority groups in terms of being progressive. Now at the Pew Hispanic Center, we've certainly seen Latinos leaning more this way in their public opinion viewpoints, particularly on immigration issues. However, one of the things in talking to, to John and Rui about the, about the data set was, and this is a caution, is that the sample doesn't include a Spanish-speaking sample. So unfortunately, the survey wasn't asked in Spanish. That's, 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 that's okay. 
but it's something to be cautious about when looking at these particular results, particularly for Hispanics. I don't think the inclusion of a Spanish-speaking sample will necessarily change things very much, but it might change some of the results in the relative ranking of Hispanics. Um, in terms of uh, the big uh, one thing that I took away from this that I thought that was really, really interesting was this issue about education. The divide between those who are non-college educated versus those who are college educated is tremendous in terms of many things such as civic engagement, in terms of economic success, etc. At Circle, we concentrated on this a lot because it's, a, it's an important rift in the data. Whenever you look at data, you see tremendous differences. So I was very interested to see many of these differences here. And I do think that differences in education may also be tied with particular ethnic groups, once again returning to Hispanics, who generally don't have the same levels of educational attainment as their non-Hispanic counterparts. I'm going to stop there because I know we want to open this up to questions, but I want to say again, thank you for the opportunity to comment on both of these papers, and I'd be happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark. Appreciate it. Mark Schmidt? Thank you. You set a, a standard for brevity, Mark, which I hope I can, uh, can equal. I'm really pleased to be here. I'm really uh, thrilled, among other things, that there is such a thing as the Progressive Studies Program at TAP. I think it's a really, it's, it's, it's I, I, one of those elements that's always been missing as we sort of think about the progressive infrastructure is that capacity to think about our history and, and, and what it means to be a, and what it means to be a progressive and, and you know, this is the beginning of a, I hope of a very, very rich uh, uh, program, I'm sure it will be, um, and it's really thrilling to, to feel present at this moment of, of enormous demographic and, uh, and political transition. I'm kind of interested, I guess, in, in thinking about how we got, you know, any poll, as they will always say, is a snapshot of a moment. I think this is a very broad snapshot covering, covering a, a, a very resilient range of time. But I'm still interested in kind of how we got to this point and then where it could potentially go. And I'm always, of course, wary of any straight line projection into the future, whether it was, you know, Karl Rove's 30 years of Republican rule or, 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 or anything else. Um, I've been, uh, the other day, I'm, I'm sometimes the, uh, the uh, very, very often the old guy uh, these days, and being the old guy means, you know, I remember 1993, 94 as something other than sophomore year. And um, uh, somebody asked me the other day, uh, well, what, you know, back in 93, 94, did they do all that socialism, socialism, socialism stuff about Clinton? Was, were they, uh, were they, uh, were they using that word the way they're, the way they've been, the way the conservatives have been using it now about, about Obama in a quite, quite hilarious way? And, you know, the answer is not, is no, because they had the word liberal. And, uh, and if you look at all the TV ads from, from that period, they were all just like, liberal, liberal, liberal. They had a special announcer who could pronounce the word in a particular heavy tone. Um, <laughs> And you know, eventually it kind of wore out. It's it, it, it wore out, and and you know, perfectly fine to have the word progressive, which actually is a, is a distinctly different word, as as I think the, the the polls indicate. But but it wouldn't matter if you used the word liberal in any in the way that it the way that it did back then. What's interesting about that is what is the word liberal conveyed a lot besides economics. It was really about kind of. The, the misunderstandings of the 60s and 70s. It was about race. It was about welfare. It was about culture wars. Uh, it had. It was a. It was a word loaded with a lot of stuff. Whereas the word socialism, other than you know, vague sense of you know, 19th century Germans or something like that, is basically an economic. It, it's basically purely an economic accusation. It's not loaded with all that, with with all that history. And I think is an indication that. That history has has kind of fallen away. The 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 sixties and seventies, the misunderstandings that kind of led to the to, to the to the classic breakdown of liberalism have have 
have, have fallen off. There's a lot to that. A lot of it is generational. People don't, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's a long time since it passed. A lot of it is things that happened in, with, you know, with President Clinton, things like, things like welfare reform, took some of those things off the, off the table. The growing racial, you know, the, 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 the white kids in the millennial generation live in a much more racially diverse environment than, than, uh, than white working class uh, voters of, a, of, of an older generation. So there are a lot of reasons that the racial uh, dimension has softened. It hasn't gone away, but it certainly doesn't have the same power. So that, so that the uh, conservatives' ability to sort of break this thing down by pushing the same old buttons that, that they pushed in 1993, even by using a different, different word uh, like socialism, don't really, don't really, uh, aren't really going to work as well for largely for reasons of the of the of the demographics, and that's why it was it was great to have Rui's paper coupled with uh, with uh, with John's and the and the uh, and the public opinion poll. What was interesting to me in, in as that happened is that all you know, Rui has a, one statement in his paper. Where he says kind of the culture war ended. All the culture pieces have kind of fallen off, other than basically a kind of backlash against conservative meddling, you know, um, uh, tolerance values are, are, are the cultural values that are, that are, that are highest here. Um, and, and everything rests on economic values. What's really interesting to me is that the, the economic values that rank at the very top in, uh, in the public, in the large survey that John talked about, are, not, they're, not, they're not necessarily the things we would have been talking about, say, five years ago. Their, their values, that, I mean, the number one is Americans should adopt a more sustainable lifestyle by conserving energy and consuming fewer goods. Uh, it takes until 11 where you get something that has any kind of hard populist edge. Um, government policies to have conserved the interests of corporations and the wealthy. This is not, uh, this is a, a, an economic mood. It's progressive, and its brand of progressivism is, you know, more like late Jimmy Carter than early Bill Clinton. It's, it's, it's values of sustainability, future orientation, um, uh, patience, willing to think about reducing consumption, diminished expectations, all those things that we write off as, you know, you know Reagan's Morning in America captured, you know, showed that you can't, you can't talk in that kind of, in that kind of language. Um, and, then, and then a more vigorous populist language that's sort of, you know, you're, speaks to everybody as if they're the little guy, and and uh, and and will will stand up to the power. I think. I mean, John. I, I, I expect John will disagree with me about this. But it's it's really interesting how how the how how prevalent these values that are really about cooperation and future orientation are. Um, really, we're really quite astounding. And then when you when I look at it and realize the degree to which it all rests on on economic values. I mean, there's really not this the essence of this kind of progressivism. Is really about making this economy work again. You know, re rebuilding, um, rebuilding a kind of uh, a kind of prosperity uh, is is a really a reminder of how much is at stake in actually making it work. Of course, you know, you can have all the values uh, in, in the world, and, and we really, really have to make it work. I think the what's great about the depth and resilience of the of the of the values and the demographics that support those values is that it will allow the administration to do some things that if, if it were an edgier time would be so much harder to do. Of course, health care prevalent among them. 
there will always be a certain amount of, of, of resistance, fear, backlash about health care, anything you do with that. If you have enough of a resilient uh, a majority, a resilient consensus, you can get through that and then you come out on the other side with a value that's implemented in a way that people are beginning to feel like this works for them. Healthcare, of course, is central uh, to not just to individuals getting healthcare, but to companies being able to hire and 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 not um, and not uh, be terrified about that cost and the changes in that in that cost and things like that. So that you come out on the other side of that, and uh, and and then where are you? I mean, I think I think at a certain point you will have a a conservative Republican. Uh, movement that responds to this in a way that's very different from the way they're responding to it now, which is just hit the 1993-94 button over and over again and see if and see if it works. Um, that adjusts adjusts to those to those to those facts of progressive governance, not just the attitudes of progressive governance, but the reality and success of it. Uh, and then you have something that looks a lot, you know, very a very good model. We actually have an article about it in the in the late, last issue of the magazine. Looks a lot like what's happened with the with the Conservative Party in in Great Britain uh, right now. It took them ten years after the Blair election uh, until they found uh, David Cameron as a leader. And you know he's not he's 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 not Michael Steele. He's not you know it's not the off the hook uh, Conservative Party. But it's a matter of, of of accepting certain things as as the basic assumptions and expectations of 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 life in 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 Great Britain right now. Uh, for example, adopting the, the goal of ending child poverty, uh, stripping the Conservative Party of its anti-immigration and uh, uh, xenophobic attitudes. Uh, it took a lot to do that. It will take the Republican Party and conservatism a lot to strip itself of the uh, policies and values and attitudes that led it to the to the situation that it's in. And you know, if if uh, if uh, after uh, after many a good many years of, of Conservative of, of progressive governance, we have a we were to have a Republican president who accepted all those things on the ground. That would be, you know, that would be uh, not not would not be the end of the world. Just as the Eisenhower presidency wasn't the end of the world, um, and I think that's what that you know I, I like to I like to think of the things in those terms as opposed to the uh, you know a thirty year dominance. But I think all the con I think the, the both the demographics and the polling shows that all the conditions are in place if you're able to do the policies right to actually create something where progressive. Values turn into facts, and the facts last and reinforce progressive values. Thanks a lot, Mark. And Mark, um, one of the interesting things um, that we see in this is that, you know, Mark mentioned it here. What's considered to be radical by conservatives today is actually mainstream consensus opinion for the rest of America. So your point about Cameron, I think, is well taken. That until this is one of the things that seems to confound the other side about uh, President Obama. Uh, you know, he, he seems to have found that center spot in many ways. It's an interesting trend. Um, Rui, I don't know if you want to respond to anything uh, that, that you heard here, and then we're going to turn it over to questions from you all. Oh, just a couple of re uh, remarks, I guess. Um, we do know that white millennials, white 18, 29-year-olds 20, uh, in this election, did support Barack Obama by 10 points. So that's an indicator maybe of some, some kind of change. In fact, we know that if you look at white working class voters, uh, you know, look at that group and then break it down by age, the most liberal or progressive leaning members of that group tend to be the 18 to 29 year olds. So this is, um, this change I think, this generational shift is gonna uh, sweep across a lot of these different categories and change things. Your point is well taken, a lot of Hispanics obviously can't, can't vote and I discussed that uh, some in a disproportionately amount and I discussed this some in the paper. But I was fascinated by your remark that we're converging 
you know, in fact, there's an estimate that by what, 2040, the percent of Hispanic eligible voters would equal the percent of uh, all eligible voters. Very, very interesting. And Mark, your point about the culture wars is, is also something I expanded upon a lot in, in the paper. And it really is hard to look at these these multiple and interacting uh, shifts in the population that are going to take place and that have taken place and will take place in the next 10, 15, 20 years and not see that the ground is just being cut out from under culture wars as we have known it and hopefully won't know it in the future. And this is a big, and, and leads into all the other things you were, you were talking about in terms of what we're really going to be debating and what the Republican Party uh, is conservatives are really going to have to do to get back in the ballgame. Um, I don't know if they'll be but what the version of Eisenhower Republicans will be in this era, but it'd be interesting to see. But they're not quite there yet, I think. Great. Uh, well, again, thanks to everybody, um, and, and thanks for uh, listening to a lot of uh, dense but very uh, informative presentations, I think. Um, Susie's going to, she has a microphone here. If you, uh, any questions, please raise your hand. We'll try and get to as many as we can. Uh, if you wouldn't mind just, uh, you know, stating your name, where you're from, something something about yourself and then uh, direct your question to uh, somebody on the panel or you, you can address to everybody, but please try and keep them kind of sharp and not six part questions. <laughs> I'm getting old and have trouble keeping them all in mind. So. Uh, right up, we'll start up front here. Yeah. Um, Marty Birnbaum, I'm a frequent visitor to most of what you do. Uh, just one thing, did you rank the ideas, all four your ideas as to which are important to the people that which you've ranked them based on how total important. acceptance, but the 40, which are more important than the others. Yes, that's what the, that's what table one is. What do you mean by important? But, oh, in terms of importance, we, you know. The idea itself, not, yes. not the people who talked about it. There are many ranking. things, if we had an unlimited amount of time to interview people and uh, an unlimited budget, yes, we would have, we could have replicated the exact 40 with the priorities of each one and match it up, but it's, it's hard enough to keep people on the phone. It seems to me it's huge then when you don't do that. If, if, my, if I'm, the most important thing to me is putting food on the table for my kids. I really don't care. Number two is that you might well be 30. But we, well, they yeah. are randomized. No, no, in terms of the just to be clear, right. may, like, okay. these, are, these are presented one by one. We do not ask them to rank order them. We are presenting the, we're presenting the results as they came back to us. So you get to rate each one, and presumably if you care deeply about it, on either side, you rate it at a much higher level. Right. We're just right. presenting. They didn't go. They didn't hear all forty and say, "I like this one more than that one." They responded to each one. So, yeah. Uh, over here, yeah. Uh, yeah. Hi, Stephen Dahl, uh, returned from Oxford University. What demographic trends do you think this progressive uh, movement shares with previous U.S. progressive movements? Well, I think uh, the, the, our forthcoming report on this, <laughs> once we figure out the answer, will uh, we'll tell you. Now, that's a fascinating question, and I, I'd love to delve into that. Um, you know, but first, I'd have to be a bit more of an expert than I am on demographic shifts in, you know, from the 1880s to 19, 1920. I mean, the big changes there were you know, the rise of industrialism, certain waves of immigration coming in. I don't know. I'm just going to have to punt on that one. I mean, that, you know, most of it is, is, is historical data. You get, you know, directly comparing the data is, is almost impossible to do. There's a, you know, there's some understanding that, I, that, the, that, that the trends that uh, Rui outlined, the progressive coalition is far more diverse than it used to be. I mean, I think we, we know that the divisions on race were pretty substantial, uh, particularly geographic divisions on this. So if you look at the New Deal coalition, and again, the data is not clear on this, but it's, 
it's I would imagine that it looks like the progressive coalition has become more much more diverse uh, not only in its people who inhabit it but in their views in many ways let's go oh, we have it we have we have it yes <laughs> I, I, I think uh, I would refer back I would refer the questioner back to a book I often cite, which is David Gondrelli's book on the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, and the shift of uh, dem uh, the shift to a more progressive posture of immigrant labor, women in the workforce, uh, and ultimately with Al Smith's candidacy in, in 1928, uh, Catholics moving to the to the uh, uh, to essentially a core part of the New Deal Democratic uh, coalition. Yeah, there's no question that the the rise of immigrant populations in major American cities coincided with a substantial rise of support for progressive politics. I just yeah. John's point is really add into that the the middle class, the educated middle class. They were pretty key in the yeah. progressive era, and it looks like they're playing a role like that now too. Let's go back, and we'll start coming forward. Uh, green jacket back there. Hello there. Uh, my name is Nina Abelson, and from the looks of it, I, I just may be the most specific <coughs> representative here of the millennial, single <laughs> woman educated in an urban area, so on and so forth. Um, <coughs> but my, <laughs> my question is going uh, possibly to all of you, but maybe Mark specifically, because you made a comment about the conservative meddling. And, <coughs> and as somebody from my uh, demographic, both, uh, like quite possibly age specifically, um, have a very biased view that we try to connect and quote unquote cross the aisle and, and so on and so forth and have a well-rounded uh, opinionated view when we make an action, yet the most conservative of the conservatives seem to be very stuck to the status quo of their beliefs. So do you have any ideas on how, because you're speaking about with time and, and with generational progression, uh, conservatives will have to be focusing on a different method to uh, make their own progress, how we can try and connect <coughs> so it's not such a battle. Mark, do you want to address that? Well, I mean, I was not one of the most, I mean, you know, I'm not on a on a campus or, or anything. I was thought, you know, one of the most interesting factoids of the last uh, of the last four or five years was that the uh, the Baylor University student paper uh, endorsed gay marriage. I mean, you know, one of the most you know one of the most conservative uh, campuses in the country. So generationally, it's just that you know the cultural war stuff has has fallen away. Even even where there and and of course there are going to be hardcore conservatives. But let's not get distracted by this, you know, conservatives like used to like use the word remnant for for themselves in the old William F. Buckley era. Let's not get distracted by this remnant that is still replaying uh, the world of, of, of the of the early nineties. Uh, it will exist. There's there's a far broader group emerging in, in, uh, in particularly in younger generations that is uh, that, that that basically has has a different attitude uh, about about the culture war values and, and understands that that's not actually how they're going to build their next majority. I, you know, it's not our task to help them figure out how they build their next majority, um, but but that ain't it. Well, if I could add one quick thing on this, uh, you know, one of the uh, I mentioned the findings on on libertarian and, and perhaps our friends at Cato will figure this out. 
the uh, there's a lot of people don't, who don't can't identify or rate the libertarian label. But when you when you get into it, younger people are much more likely to give it a higher rating than others. Uh, when you break down the values, there are much more libertarian values among younger people. Uh, so you know, five years from now, you might see a, a shift in that percentage of, of um, people looking favorably upon libertarian. Perhaps if they find some. Uh, candidates who might attract people. Um, well, it's interesting that uh, young people don't are actually more progressive on the role of government right. than you know, other gen older generations, which is kind of not the greatest space for libertarians. On the cultural right. issues. In, in cultural issues yeah. makes more sense, yeah. Uh, <coughs> somebody, who's had, you have to help me out. Who's had their hand up a while and I've missed them? This gentleman over here, he's self-selected. I guess it's, a, it's addressed more to, to really than anyone. Uh, I noticed, uh, well, one of the, one of the, you're, you're talking about the growth of metropolitan areas as a key factor in, in the growth of, the, the, I guess, the progressive coalition. And one of the key factors in the growth of the Republican dominance was the growth and incredible Republican orientation of the, I guess, suburban donuts around some of our largest cities. Uh, could you comment? Is that, uh, do you see that changing? In, uh, because uh, uh, so many large urban areas where you have a progressive urban central city surrounded by a suburban, very Republican belt. Well, that, that's a good question. And in fact, uh, I don't remember the exact pages, but I actually discussed that for several pages in, in the report. Um, kind of the bottom line is that uh, the suburbs have essentially gone uh, progressive. Um, and they've gone progressive because, uh, partly because these outer suburbs you're alluding to, sometimes called exurbs or exurbia. They become uh, far more competitive between uh, progressives and conservatives, and in a lot of key and rapidly growing metro areas, they're actually starting to lean you know, toward, you know, for example, they voted for Barack Obama. Take Loudoun County and Prince William County in the Northern Virginia uh, part of the D.C. metro. There are lots of other examples. These, these, it was thought that since these counties are so rapidly growing, and they seem to be pretty Republican or pretty conservative, that that would provide them with a big advantage moving forward. That has really not turned out to be the case. These are heavily contested now between uh, progressives and conservatives. There was only a seven-point deficit for Barack Obama looking at all these fast-growing outer suburbs or exurbs across the country, and he totally dominated the inner and mature suburbs, which is basically 64% of large metro areas. So, uh, the way things are working out, in fact, is basically the battle line, the division between progressives and conservatives has now been moved pretty far out into the, into the exurbs, and the Democrats or progressives dominate uh, the, rest of, uh, the rest of that suburban ring, and that's quite enough to make metro areas lean pretty heavily toward progressives at this point, and the larger they are and the more faster and faster growing they are, the more that's the case. Uh, Mark, I don't know from your research, Mark Lopez, I don't know whether you have anything to add to that on specifically exurban areas. Uh, well, uh, if we want to talk about the Latino population, one of the things that we've seen uh, around the country is that in 3,000 of the 3,100 counties in the United States, the Latino population has grown between 2000 and 2007. So in the last seven years, we've seen Latino growth essentially everywhere around the country. I think that might be a marker for many other things as well, but certainly I do think that we're seeing a growth in many of these exurb areas of minority populations, including Hispanics, and that might partly explain what we're seeing generally. Yeah, no, there, are, there are heavy shifts toward minorities in a lot of these fast-growing outer suburbs, much sharper than actually in the inner suburbs. That are, you know, you can take a place like Douglas County, Colorado, which is a very conservative county outside of Denver. The growth rate of minorities in, in this suburb is just amazing. Um, so it's, the ground is shifting underneath people's feet, even as it keeps growing. 
Next question, Ken. Hi, um, my name is Judy Martinez, and I write a, col a column on Hisp Hispanic issues uh, for Politico. And as I hear y'all talk, I keep thinking about how the measurements are tied to Obama's election. But I wonder in the back of my mind how long it really will take for the politicians to catch up to the progressive movement. Because in the congressional districts, even though you have progressives voting more for Obama, there still is a split when they get further down the ballot. They are still voting more conservatively in some places. And so I wonder just for your opinion as to how long you think it will take for the two to catch up where we will actually see less conservatives uh, you know, winning re-election or election in the first place? It's an excellent question that's tied into the, uh, the, arrange the, the institutional arrangement of Congress in elections. But you know, really, I don't know from your evidence if you have any sub-national, sub I mean, sub-presidential sub data that might be able to answer that question. Well, the farther, and Mark might have something to say about this too, the farther you get down the ballot, the harder it is to get good data broken out by, by race. But um, uh, the general pattern uh, is that Hispanics at local, sort of down the ballot, they do tend to vote pretty much like they do presidentially, though, you know, the farther down you get, there, there's more room for variation. But by and large, it's, it's pretty heavily on one, on one side. Local conditions or certain candidates sometimes change that quite a bit. But the, very, the pattern tends to be the same. And again, I think the underlying reason for that is what are, what are Latinos' attitudes? What do they want out of life? What kind of things are they looking for in candidates? These are things that tend, tend to tilt them toward the progressive candidate just because of what their priorities, just because their views, just because of what they, they see the role of government as being. Uh, progressives represent one side of that, conservatives another, and so by and large they're going to pick the progressive candidate. Not as a perfect relationship, but just on average. But if I, if I could give one state as an example, okay. Texas, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it will always What we see in the, in the survey evidence is that uh, politicians in particular, of both stripes, uh, would be wise to embrace and, and pursue a pretty bold agenda of transformation in, in the country. And I think that's why President Obama is doing well, but there's no reason, and it t usually Congress is somewhat of a lagging indicator of the rest of the country, uh, but there's no reason why candidates, and maybe somebody will figure this out and challenge some of these people, can't be advocating for pretty bold economic and, uh, and activist government oriented uh, policies. I think that I mean that that's that's part of what our data says in many ways. There's reason to you know have a confident progressive point of view on many of these things. Mark, I don't know if you had a yeah. I mean, I I heard the question not entirely as limited to uh, uh, to to Latinos, although that's obviously part of the dimension. I mean, in a lot of ways, I think in a, in a lot of areas, it goes back to the previous question: local the, the rise of a local democratic and progressive party coincides with change and, and in some ways precedes 
change at the national level. So that in Rui's paper, for example, he has a large section on the on the Philadelphia suburbs, and this is true in the in the New York suburbs, and certainly in, in Connecticut, and I think it's probably true in uh, in Chicago area as well. The set of issues that actually th those were the classic Republican suburban strongholds, not not the suburban strongholds of the 80s and 90s, but of the of the 20s and 30s. Um, Historically, I mean, registration through the roof, Republican, uh, but but fundamentally, fundamentally not comfortable with the crazy conservative uh, Republican Party. So over a period of time, they they shifted. That also was driven, certainly in Pennsylvania, probably in some of the other cases, by development fights that made people much more comfortable with the role of government and actually made creating a livable uh, county, livable area uh, uh, for them. And that's a huge local. Uh, transformation at the gubernatorial level. I think what what's interesting. Obviously, there are there and and you know so the democratic trends in state overall state state legislatures, uh, you know, have been huge since oh, even in '04. I think there was a solid democratic majority across all legislate legislatures, which counts includes states like Oklahoma, where they're all very very conservative Democrats, but but less than there were in the past, and um, and and that's and that steadily steadily increased. And if you talk to state legislators, they'll sometimes say, well, you know, these republic, you know, a few ideologues, they're basically not ideologues, but the Republicans did create a, a little bit more of an ideological group. Um, the interesting thing, though, you know, when you, if I've tried to, tried to think about some ways in which the Republicans build a comeback. Obviously, Republican governors are the key to any, you know, it is not going to be John Boehner uh, who brings the Republican Party back into the sunlight. It, it, it's going to be somebody like Mitch Daniels or Tim Pawlenty in Minnesota, somebody like that, who could sort of show, and, and I, to me this was very much the story of the 1990s, with all those big state Republican governors who made it seem like Conservatism was potentially a, a, government, a governing philosophy. A lot of them were a lot of them were scam, a lot of them were running scams, you know, using their pension funds and things like that to make it look like they were they were governing effectively. But they made people feel like conservatism was could be effective. And I think when people first looked at George W. Bush, they felt like he was kind of one of those guys, like John Engler in Michigan or or, or Christy Whitman in in New Jersey. And that was a you know that was a not an unfamiliar type, and it turned out to it turned out not to be true. But I think as you go forward, some of those governors will be uh, will be important to the Republicans. Dan. We've got time I, uh, for for two more questions. I believe. Okay, and we're happy to talk with folks afterwards. As well. Yeah, I'm Dan Martin, Conservation International, uh, and you have all of these uh, trend data that go over long term, but when you came down to your questions and the aggregate being uh, 209 on a 400 point scale, that sounds to me like a very centrist position. You interpreted that as a strong lean in one direction, and it seems to me um, like a pretty thin lean and uh, a uh, kind of uh, natural uh, centrism. What do you? How do you? Yeah, no. My think interpretation that? was that it's it's it, it's decisively progressive because it's on one side versus the other, but it's not excessively so. And when you compare it with the other data, which is the the, the, the attitudes on the forty questions, where the consensus is greatest among progressive ideas, and you add that to the to the new data on self identification, which shows a more evenly divided country, we see it, it, it's leaning progressive. It's not excessively so, and I don't think. Uh, it's, ne it's necessarily permanent. Some of the demographic tr trends might 
uh, put that in place. But one of the things we're, we're clear about in the report is that there is residual strength to the conservative worldview. A lot of people believe ideas on both sides of the, uh, of the ideological divide. Uh, right now, most of those core conservative ideas are sublimated uh, in relation to progressive ideas, but there's no reason why um, you know, the conservative movement couldn't figure out a way to tap into that. Now, Mark's point is, is valid here. There doesn't appear to be evidence that they're going in that direction. So if they were to moderate their views in some cases on economics, at least from you know, a more populist progressive side, if they were culturally traditional but not extreme, perhaps more realist on foreign policy and not as, as sort of gung-ho neocon, uh, you know, you might be able to pull off the Cameron-style uh, rebranding of, the, of their side, but that doesn't appear to be the case. So I think in the short term, even though the slight lean, uh, is, it, it is in the middle, but it's, it is progressive, and, it, and it's backed up by a range of attitudes that are strongly well, progressive. Well, center left. <laughs> okay, we have, uh, I apologize, we have, uh, why don't we just see if we can get three quick questions. Maybe, yeah, people could just give them, we take them all at once. We're going to, we're going to pool questions, so please, let's just... Uh, get three right here, please. That would be great. Um, my name is Chris Murray. I teach political science for Marquette University here in D.C. Um, my question is kind of similar to the earlier one about Hispanic voters and kind of comparing this period of, of progressive ascendancy to maybe the one of conservative ascendancy prior to it. And do some of the trends that you're identifying kind of point to a ceiling of ascendancy, thinking like the electoral map, like you saw with Republicans, so I guess, do, could you see Democrats winning South Carolina and Oklahoma like Republicans were winning California and New York? Um, Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, Allison Owens, attorney from uh, Columbia, Maryland. To whom was the study or the survey distributed and how long or what period of time was the survey conducted? And one more. Um, I just wanted to follow up on the Mark Nadell, a frequent visitor. Um, I was struck by the fact that um, the less educated were less progressive. And I was wondering whether you've explored the possibility that some of the less progressiveness might be out of ignorance, where people express positions that are inconsistent, as in they're in favor of getting the government out of the marketplace until a situation occurs, and then they say, why wasn't the government here to stop this from happening, or we want a smaller government, we want lower taxes, but hey, we need a stronger military, we need to spend more on this, we need more on health care, we need more whatever, so that if they had to reconcile and come up with a consistent position, it would turn out to be more progressive. Okay, thank you. Um, the, uh, just to be clear on that, would, the, the education division is uh, it's more complicated than being less progressive or not progressive. There are, there are more progressive positions among those with a high school degree or less on things like the role of corporations and the wealthy and, and public policy, um, you know, the need to fight inequality. There are a range of things that are more progressive than their, uh, their postgraduate uh, educated counterparts. Where you see more conservatism is on the cultural side and on things like the use of military force to combat terrorism. Uh, we didn't explore, this was not an, an advocacy poll. We wanted test-based attitudes. We weren't trying to convince people one way or another. We were just presenting the attitudes. The question that uh, the poll was administered, it's a national sample, so it was 1,400 Americans. Um, and then we have a companion survey that combines about 915 interviews with young people. Uh, it, was, it was conducted in February over about an eight-day period, uh, and we're distributing all the data and, uh, and the reports widely. They're all available on our website. So, uh, Rui, do you want to take the ascendancy question real quick? 
Yeah, I don't think we've, we've hit the, the ceiling necessarily. I mean, these demographic trends are going to continue for, for quite a while. Um, and there's a lot of discussion in the report about how long some of them are likely to go. I mean, some of them, like, minority growth is pretty locked in. Um, there's a little bit more doubt about how educational upgrading, how long the college-educated population is going to continue to grow. Of course, that's susceptible to public policy. But I think that, by and large, they will continue, and they're going to put other states in play, I think. I mean, Texas is totally not out of the question as things move forward. Basically, where, where the fast-growth areas of the United States are where a lot of these, these trends are having their, their greatest effects. So uh, John McCain may have taken Arizona in 2008, but don't be surprised if... Uh, you know, that uh, Barack Obama manages to take it in 2012. Look at Georgia and how close it was this time. Um, there's, I think there's a lot of states out there that are going to get, uh, that can easily get, get pretty close. And again, where, where growth is taking place, that's, that's where uh, progressives are likely to have uh, opportunities in the future beyond the ones they've already taken advantage of. Well, thank you. That's all the time we have. We appreciate you staying with us. Um, many thanks to uh, the Marks for their insightful comments. And thanks to John and Rui for uh, joining us today. And have a nice afternoon.